You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode, where we'll be discussing newest approved indications for CAR-T therapy, referring patients for consultation, how to engage patients and caregivers in discussions about CAR-T, short and long-term side effects, uh, and side effect management, and much more. And I think as probably many or all of us are aware, there's been a lot of new advances and new approvals by the FDA, and it's, it will be exciting to talk about them. Uh, today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Rain Rouse, who is an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the Texas Children's Cancer Center for Cell and Gene Therapy at Baylor College in Houston. Rain, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. There has been, again, a lot of buildup to some very exciting new advances in CAR-T and indications. But before we jump there, which is, so we'll leave this as a little bit of suspense for the listeners, but if you would give us an overview of the immune system and cancer. You know, patients often will say, you know, or we say as oncologists, why didn't the immune system take care of this or get rid of this cancer or prevent it? So start with that, if you would, and then let's move into what we as oncologists are now able to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great place to start. So all of us are aware that we all have immune system cells and they have very specific jobs they're supposed to do in our body. One thing that I think we often forget is that many of our immune system cells, while they are really good at killing foreign things that are not supposed to be there, they are not necessarily specific for an antigen that's on the surface of a cancer, for example. So we all have T cells, right? And CAR T cells are obviously a special type of T cell that we make in the lab. But within our body, if we had, you know, 10 million T cells, we might have a certain population of those that's very specific to a certain virus that we may have come into contact with when we were little, like your granddaughter, you go to daycare, you get all these different illnesses, and then your T cells are really smart, so they develop the capability of memory so they can remember those illnesses and really come out and fight against them in the future. The issue is there are very few naturally occurring antigens on cancers that T cells have been primed against. So one of the common denominators in all cancers is that the immune system, obviously it's more multifactorial, but the immune system has fallen down on the job, right? And so this cancer, this proliferation of cells that isn't supposed to be there, has been able to evade the immune system, if that makes sense. However, because we know that the way that T cells and many of our other immune system cells work is to be able to target, identify, and try to attack antigen when it's presented to them in a certain way. 
The natural way that our T cells are presented antigen is through various antigen presenting cells like monocytes and dendritic cells. But that can be a bit of a cumbersome process. So the bottom line of immunotherapy is saying, can we take T cells or other immune system cells? Can we take them to the laboratory? And can we actually train them in a way that they only have eyes for a specific antigen that's present on a cancer that we want them to. So it's basically souping these T cells up and helping them not only to do what we would like them to do in the body, but creating this population of almost like an, an army of T cell warriors that's very specific for one certain thing, rather than, you know, being a bit promiscuous, if you say, and, and, and trying to fight other things. Does that make sense? It does. So let me reflect on something else. There are, and it will seem a little bit out of the way, but hopefully we can bring it back in. There are some assays now. Uh, these are for patients with colon cancer, for example, right. that we send in the, the block. They're able to identify some antigens that are specific to that patient's cancer. Then we screen for it in the blood to see if they've had any of that antigen or DNA floating around. Right. So same, in a sense, sort of that same question. Do CAR-Ts, does this type of immunotherapy need to be that level of specificity or can it be more generic for that type of cancer? Really good question. The short answer is CAR-T cells can be a bit more generic because they do not require processing and presentation of antigen the way the body normally does. They have been equipped to have this special artificial receptor right there on the surface so that they can identify things that are on the surface of other cells. So you're talking about really revolutionary things in cancer therapy where we can identify these kind of specific markers that may be specific for this patient's cancer, but not necessarily for this other ones and may identify some new ways of targeting them. But with CAR T cell therapy, it's personalized to a cancer. It's personalized to the patient because you've, in most cases, made the cells from the patient. But you really want to identify an antigen that's present on the vast majority of a certain type of cancer. So for colon cancer, for example, you would be looking at CEA, right? You would be looking at antigen that is widely expressed. Same thing for breasts or for other cancers. We are looking at kind of next level, next generation CAR T cells where we use some of the information that we identify from these kind of circulating DNA models of diagnosing patients. So really great question. Let me ask, I mean, this is firstly a wonderful opportunity for me because it's I'm having a chance to ask about things I've wondered about. With any therapy that's good, there's a group of patients who don't benefit. Right. You know, whether it be lymphoma therapy or leukemia therapy, et cetera. Right. What are some of, because the concept of uh, CAR-T is fantastic, what are the internal barriers to why it doesn't work for everyone? Yeah, this is a really great question. So rule number one in CAR-T 101, I always tell people, you know, we have the ability scientifically to create a CAR-T cell almost to any antigen that has a corresponding monoclonal antibody, right? So you might think, well, why don't we have CAR-T cells for every single type of cancer? Well, the reason that CAR T cells are particularly amenable to treating leukemias and lymphomas 
is because leukemias and lymphomas are very accessible. And for the most part, you know, so they're in the bone marrow, they're in the lymph node, they're floating around in the blood, these cancer cells. For the most part, there's a great deal of uniformity of the markers that are expressed, right? So you can make a CAR T cell like the CD19 CAR T cell, right? And it can target not only B ALL, but also large B cell lymphoma. And it could also target MCL, for example. So that's one of the big pluses. At the same time, one of the barriers is that if you have a leukemia or a lymphoma that does not express an antigen homogeneously across all of the population, right? So we know there are some antigens that we'd love to target, but they're only present on 50% of the cells, are only present on this proportion of the cells. So that's one barrier. The other is that these are personalized therapies, right? So for the most part, the CAR T cells that most people know about are what we call autologous, meaning they're made from the patient themselves. So there's an inherent requirement of the patient. So imagine trying to collect T lymphocytes as a starting product from patients who we've been giving systemic chemotherapy, right? And so we know how puny these patient cells can be. And even when you have enough from a quantity standpoint to collect them, the quality of the T cells matters. Not all starting products that we're using to make CAR T cells are the same. So that's a big barrier. And one of the biggest barriers that we've kind of been able to overcome is it used to take months to generate these cells and get them back to the patient. And we all know that if you're a patient who has previously failed therapies or has refractory disease, that's just too long to wait, right? Absolutely. And so that's a situation where the the personalization aspect and the patient's T cells having to be the starting product has really been an issue for lots. And then with any personalized boutique therapy, you know, we know that the cost is an issue, right? We know this. Fortunately, we've really come a long way since 2017 and the first approval of of the first two products where insurance companies are understanding the codes, are understanding the potential benefit of these therapies, but they're quite expensive. And for most of them, patients have to remain within a certain distance of the treating site for often three weeks, four weeks. And this is huge, right? So if you're treating a patient in a small town in Oklahoma and they have to go to Oklahoma City or even to another state to get this therapy, that often is a barrier. And the physician may say, I know that this person has children. I know that they have other things going on. I'm not sure that this is a therapy that will be that accessible to them. Sure, That's to list a few. Yeah. Yeah. So I, by the way, I've been vigorously taking notes here. So I want to ask you about the lack of heterogeneity of these antigens. It made me think a little bit about, we talk about cancer stem cells. So with CAR-T, are we attacking the progeny or are we attacking the stem cells or do you think we're attacking both? Such a good question. So it's not a coincidence that CAR T cells for B cell leukemias and lymphomas are frontline. CAR T cells for AML are lagging behind, right? And it's yes. because we know the stem cell plays such a big role in AML, right? right. And so part of the issue is that the these B cell antigens are not only present on the leukemia and lymphoma cells, also present on normal B cells, but it certainly is not required to target at this truly kind of stem cell, very earliest progenitor cell the way you need to with AML, 
Okay, so for AML, there are a number of promising CAR T cells, but we have two major problems. One is that you have to target an antigen that's present on that leukemic stem cell, but also present on its progeny afterwards. And two, if you're targeting an antigen that's present on a leukemic stem cell, it's probably present on other stem cells, right? Yeah. So you have this issue of on target off tumor toxicity, which is very acceptable when it comes to a B cell because we can replace immune globulin, right? Not very acceptable when it comes to a stem cell. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. That was a a great explanation. You know, I've wondered to myself, you know, you treat a group of patients for AML, for lymphoma. There's a group that have become long-term survivors. It could be Right. Let's say large cell lymphoma, seven out of 10. Again, patients ask, residents ask, and I'm asking too, is it that some patients do well because of their own innate immune system having some capability? Or is it just because the cells were so chemosensitive or sensitive to rituxan, for example? This is such a great question. So the true answer is we still have not completely figured it out, despite all of the research that we've done. But what I will say is CAR T cells are designed to take the burden off of the patient's own innate T cell ability. Okay, so the way that T cells normally kill is through their T cell receptor that often has some memory, right? We call that the native T cell receptor. It's the one that they've had, they're born with, they have it, right? So when we attach those cars, the goal is to make them all equal, to say, I'm going to put this car that has this built-in energizer battery in it, and I'm going to attach it to these T cells, and that way you, you don't have to rely on your body's own innate immune system. However, what we do know is the persistence of the CAR T cells certainly does factor in to how well people do and how long they stay in remission if they initially achieve it. I do believe that there likely is some interplay of the innate immune system. And we certainly see when we give CAR T cells or other sorts of T cells that are from a different person, that this almost that they kind of create a little bit of drama, wreak a little havoc in the Mm -hmm. tumor microenvironment, create some inflammation that does kind of wake up some of the patient's own T cells to finally come and join the party and do what they're supposed to have been doing. We know for sure that the patient's immune system and the ability of their T cells to expand, to take up the CAR receptor, and to really become activated in the body play a role. And so we've done a lot of things to try to rely less on the patient's own innate immunity, which includes the addition of the co-stimulation marker, right? So remember when CAR T-cells first came out and everyone was like, what's the difference between 28 Zeta and 41BB? Who cares? I don't know. And so, you know, a lot of the difference between these products is what co-stimulation they have. And we know that some co-stimulation makes them last longer. Some makes them more robust initially, but may not last that long. So you may need a transplant, right? When you're talking about co-stimulators, actually clarify a little bit. What do you mean? So this is what I mean. So the CAR molecule itself is literally combining 
the antigen recognition capability of an antibody, right? So that's yep. that little receptor thing. We all remember from immunology, we tried to block it out, but that little piece right. that looks like a, <laughs> an open arrow, right? Yes. So it combines that with the killing ability, which is called the zeta chain of the T cell. So those are the two parts that all cars have, okay? Mm -hmm. The difference between them is that we realize that just putting those together and putting them into patients initially had some killing of tumor cells, but it didn't last. So they needed an internal co-stimulation or energizer battery. Mm -hmm. So there are molecules like CD28 and 41BB. So those are the two that are in the, the first initial approved CAR T cells. If you add that into the CAR molecule itself, so outside of the body, it's a part of what you do in the lab, then it actually creates this almost refreshing ability. So when the T cell, you put that CAR T cell into the body, it comes into contact with cancer, it kills it, and then it wants to have a tendency to just go take a nap. This internal co-stimulation says, no, 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 wait, we're not done yet. There's more cancer to kill here. We have to keep going. Mm -hmm. So all of the approved CAR T cells have a built-in co-stimulation. Okay. Got it. And so people don't think about it that much because when you think about CAR T cells, um, it's almost synonymous with a CAR T that has a built-in co-stimulation. Okay. So the point of that is so that you have to rely a bit less on the patient's T cell being able to self-renew, but you almost standardize and say, I'm going to put this extra energizer battery inside of the car so that it keeps going. The second thing we realize is we have to make the environment as good as we can. Mm -hmm. So that's why we give those days of what we call lymphodepleting or conditioning chemotherapy just to prepare the body to receive the CAR T cells so they can grow once they get in the body. Right. So with all this in mind, which has been a, an incredible introduction, what are some of the newest indications? Because, you know, we're all reading about them. So fill us in. Yeah. So it's really exciting. So the first two CAR T cells were approved for BALL, and this was in you know kids and adults up to 25, and then we had CAR T cells approved for large B-cell lymphoma, right? So since that time, there have been a couple more approvals still for the same indications of ALL or for large B-cell lymphoma, but what's been really exciting is that recent clinical trials looking head-to-head have shown that we can actually introduce these CAR T cells earlier, right? Mm -hmm. So new approval, not having to wait for after a second relapse for large B-cell lymphoma, for example, but then also approvals for MCL, approvals for multiple myeloma. So that's what's really been exciting the last few years is that we really have moved beyond just targeting the CD19 antigen on B-cell lymphomas or B-A-L-L and move to be able to target other lymphomas, but also multiple myeloma with the BCMA cars, for example. So let me ask you about large cell lymphoma. Again, we treat a group of patients. Many people are cured or at least functionally cured of the disease. There's a group that relapse. Right. You know, and traditionally, if fit enough, they would have gotten a second line therapy and then probably gone on to a transplant of some kind. Right. What are the outcomes? And tell us a little bit about the research comparing that very standard older approach with just a second line CAR T. 
Yeah, so that's a really good question. And what I will say is that the data is always still maturing. So one thing is that you can actually reinfuse CAR T cells to someone. So when you generate CAR T cells, you may only be able to generate a single dose, but in a lot of cases, especially in children, for example, there will be a leftover dose. So it depends on the mechanism of why the patient relapsed, right? So we've all heard of these patients that relapse and suddenly their cancer no longer expresses what we were targeting, like the, the CD19 antigen escape. So in that situation, these patients typically would have to move on to another line. What I will say is there is data that exists, and again, this is evolving, that Patients after CAR T cells often are comparably fit, I would say, to be able to go on to an alternative line of therapy. But because the option to either reinfuse CAR T cells, either because the patient has been sensitized to them and they're not going to work, or because they don't express that antigen anymore, these are certainly patients who you could consider for alternative lines of therapy and ultimately a transplant if they were eligible. This is obviously why there's a big push, especially for adult large B cell lymphomas, to infuse these CAR T cells earlier, right? Earlier yep. in their therapy. So that if they do, unfortunately, relapse afterward, you're not at the point where you've exhausted all other treatment options and you could potentially go on to other lines and also a transplant. You know, so vice versa, if a patient's had a, uh, an auto transplant, mm -hmm. would it be less likely that they'd be able to go on successfully to a successful CAR-T? There's actually no evidence that would suggest that a previous autotransplant would make them less likely to respond. I think it is more of a mechanism of how far out are they from the transplant? Do they have other potential comorbidities? But there isn't really evidence to suggest that it would be harder to generate CAR T cells for them. But I think in the same way with any other therapy, a person who's previously had an auto transplant probably has had a bit more lines of therapy and may have a bit more toxicity going in than right. someone who is not. So it's just keeping it in mind. And I also think thinking about the timing of collection when you know that you're going to get suitable quantity and quality of T cells, but certainly is not an option that's off the table. All right, so second line, so in large cell lymphoma indication now for second line therapy, patient relapses and they go on to CAR T. How about multiple myeloma? What's the latest? So multiple myeloma were a little bit earlier, right? And so they have very specific prescribing criteria, but the goal is to potentially have a subset of patients who you wouldn't have to do an auto transplant on. And now we have so many other treatment options for multiple yes. myeloma. So what's always interesting is once you have these FDA approved criteria is once you start treating these patients in the real world and seeing how they do, there is always the push to say, okay, can we take it one step further? And right now our prescribing criteria says you have to fail this and this, but why not potentially move this therapy earlier? And so I do think that multiple myeloma will likely follow in the footsteps of large B-cell lymphoma and probably try to move the therapy a little bit sooner. And finally, uh, mantle cell. What's the indication? What's the latest on that? 
mantle cell is similar. And remember, I'm a pediatrician, so we don't have any mantle cell patients, but mantle cell is similar to the large B cell criteria, where at present, these therapies are not available for initially diagnosed patients. And you usually do have to fail at least a single line of therapy. Right. You know, I want to ask you, this is such an unusual opportunity to to be able to hear more about pediatrics. So those of us in adult oncology are pretty uh, insulated, but what is happening in children with malignancies? Yeah, well, it has been groundbreaking. When I look at what's happened in the past 10 years, it's been amazing. BALL is the most common childhood cancer, and we usually do pretty well at treating it, but we have horribly refractory cases. And so the CD19 CAR being FDA approved for BALL that's in second or greater relapse or refractory has been revolutionary. Where And those are most of the patients that I take care of, where patients who just years ago, we would have said we don't have any other treatment options, are literally often having this as the last treatment they receive. So we are seeing long-term responses. And the likelihood of this therapy being potentially curative in children is even a bit higher than what we're seeing in the adults. So imagine treating a three-year-old or a a little tiny three-nager, tiny dictator at three, and them going into long-term remission, right? And there's not a price you can put on that. Like It's revolutionary and we're so excited. And they do really well. You know, they're not smoking a pack per day and they haven't had four myocardial infarctions. So their toxicity is often a lot easier to mitigate afterwards, which when you compare that to a bone marrow transplant and having to get full body irradiation and the, and the things that we have to do, it really outcomes and quality of life, it's incomparable. Yeah. And by the way, that perspective is a very, very important one. You know, along those lines, uh, because now there's a group of children who are a little bit further out from CAR-T, any late or long-term effects that you can sort of separate? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's something that we're actively looking at. So just to level set, these patients are getting lymphodepleting chemo that's a few days that, you know, kids, their bodies, their organ systems work pretty well. The chemo we treat them with is often much stronger mm-hmm. and much longer than yeah. we would for an adult, right? So in perspective, the lymphodepleting chemo we give them prior to CAR-T to prepare the body is like chemo medium to chemo light compared to what we typically use to treat ALL. And then after we're given the infusion, we are seeing the long-term hypogammaglobulinemia, so they do have to get immune globulin infusions, we are seeing some enhanced risk of infection. We are seeing some enhanced risk of infection in the immediate post-infusion period. But for the most part, we are not seeing big issues with fertility related to it. We are not seeing big issues with growth related to it. So a lot of these neurocognitive, so a lot of these things that we certainly see with either traditional chemo, radiation, or preparation for transplant, we do not have a clear signal on with CAR T cells yet. And we have people that are 12 years, you know, 13 years out, which is really exciting. Yeah. Just again, related to the times we're living in with COVID, there's a lot of discussion about the long haulers. Right. You know, people with long-term cognitive problems or other problems, Do you get a sense, what's your clinical sense, do you expect to see long-term problems that maybe are not apparent right now, or does that seem less likely? 
For CAR T cells in children and young adults, I think that's far less likely, far less likely. Wonderful. Just because the mechanism of how they work, I mean, they are designed specifically to target a single antigen in the case of CD19. And so that antigen, fortunately, is only present on normal B cells in the leukemia population, on leukemia cells. So the good thing is that kids, even when they have cytokine release syndrome or even when they have neurotoxicity we're not typically seeing long-term cognitive deficits or neurocognitive deficits at all, which is really, really exciting. So I think that the bulk of what we will be continuing to monitor in these very heavily pretreated prior to CAR-T patients is the different effects that they may still have to deal with because of the previous chemotherapies, radiation, et cetera, that they've received. So we still will monitor them, which is good because we certainly will be able to compare and see if we see any new unexpected or less expected deficits that arise. Fortunately, to date, we have not seen them. Terrific. You know, again, looking back to 2017, 2018, but yeah. there was a lot of discussion about the acute problems with CAR T cognitive right. and uh, yeah. uh, cytokine storm. And mm-hmm. in comparison now, uh, it's completely different. <laughs> yeah, good. So, yeah, so tell us because you know what? I think most of us who are not doing it don't know. So, fill us in. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. We have come so many academic years since those early days because we know what the primary cytokine that causes problems is usually IL 6. Tocilizumab is FDA approved to treat this, it's available. And most patients will have either partial or complete resolution of their symptoms. And one thing that's really important is we've identified that we can, in most patients receiving most approved CAR T cells, we can intervene much earlier than we used to. We used to think that if we intervene too early, giving anti-cytokine directed therapy, that it would damper the entire kind of good havoc wreaking that the CAR T cells were doing and it would make them not become activated and not expand and then it would impact the anti-tumor effect. Now we know that is typically not the case. So we can intervene when it's safer and earlier. Right. And we also have much better identification and management algorithms. So much more standardized where any place you go, if it's a CAR T center, We know how to identify these toxicities. We know how to intervene. And we know kind of a bit more what to expect. So it's a lot more of a um, comfortable place to be where we're not going to stop. We're going to (laughs) continue because we want to drastically reduce the risk. But a lot of these things are transient, necessary evils that we know how to now mitigate and continue to try to, you know, keep patients as safe as possible. Terrific. Rain, I wanted to talk with you about logistics a little bit. Again, I'm a community oncologist. I've been taking care of a patient with large cell lymphoma. They relapse. You know, again, typically I would have had the conversation of let's use a different regimen, salvage regimen. Right. So, you know, what are the logistics now? And, you know, I've had a bond with this patient, a connection, uh, and what involvement can I have as a community oncologist? Yeah, well, this is such an important question. I'm so glad you asked it because here's the thing. We talked about these eligibility criteria or prescribing criteria for these products, right? And most of them were limited to second or greater line. They have to have failed this and that. I I cannot stress enough how important it is when you have a patient that has challenging disease, 
reach out to the CAR-T Center because you can make an early acquaintance with them. You will get to know the person who is there, who their only job is to help navigate the logistics, the insurance approval, how the back and forth from the site, all of that stuff. And I like to tell referring and community practitioners this because even if you're not going to send that patient to me right away, I would love to be able to be in the know on that journey, okay? So we can identify the best time to prepare for this therapy that they may receive. The second thing that's really important to know is that now that we have CAR T-cells for these indications, almost down to a, a streamlined science, you know, it's important for referring doctors to know that the goal is not to take that patient to that outside center forever and never return them. Right. You're the doctor that's been there on the journey. You're the doctor that knows them the best. So we're really trying to work on what we call shared care models. You know, we use them in other situations, but being able to return that patient to you safely at a time point where we feel they are less likely to have side effects that you may have less experience dealing with, but where you also know how to anticipate, okay, they probably will have B-cell aplasia. I will have to plan to give these replacement medicines and kind of have this shared care where they return to your site, but we're still available in the event that they need to see us. And I think that's really the future of CAR T-cell therapy. It's what we have to do because we need to treat patients closer to where they're comfortable, closer to home, and we need to not alienate the referring provider and then make them comfortable, right? Sure, sure. It sounds like the follow-up is a little less onerous, complex. Nebulous and onerous, yes. All right. Then for a aloe transplant. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, absolutely. That's exactly correct. And the, the point is that now we know what to do. Before, we didn't exactly know how often we'd have to follow them. Were there things that were going to come up later that would be more appropriate to take care of at a CAR-T center? Yeah. Now we know what to do. So the follow-up is less onerous. And our job is to make sure that we educate the community oncologists so they know within their comfort level at what point they're ready to receive that patient back. You know, and I'm uh, again, just as a community doctor and just, I think the perspective of many of us, it's exciting to be involved in a, in a new type of therapy, uh, maybe not at the very front line, but in a supportive role. So there's a lot of good things about being involved. Absolutely. And I also think it's important to like, this is the perfect example of information, this podcast, having enough information that when your patient asks you, you know, what about CAR-T for me? If it's a frontline patient and they're doing great and have no evidence of disease, you would know to say, well, that's not really something that you would be eligible for right now. However, these are the indications for it. And, and I think it's empowering and important for the patients and for the providers. Yeah. So let me ask you about presenting this to patients. What do you think is sort of the key things for any of us to communicate to patients about this therapy? This is a really exciting therapy, right? It's a therapy that, you know, my mom is not in medicine, email me. I saw this special on TV. Is this the type of, I think one thing is to be realistic and to temper the enthusiasm. You will have a lot of patients who are newly diagnosed, right? And you're presenting chemotherapy options. And I think it's important for people to understand the limitations of the patient population this is appropriate for right now. Okay. That's number one. And being able to say, you know, right now, this is for patients who have relapse disease, or this is for patients who have refractory disease or failed these lines of therapy. But the other thing is I think recognizing that 
We're moving toward moving these therapies earlier in treatment, but we have to test them and make sure that they still have as good outcomes as what we consider the standard of care. So I think those are two really good things to help the patient understand that, because I often receive patients, right? And the first question they ask is, why didn't my oncologist offer this to me at the beginning? And I have to remind them this would not have been an appropriate therapy. At the beginning, we have actually no evidence that this therapy would be as beneficial at the beginning. So your oncologist did the standard of care and exactly what I would have done if you came to me. Right, right. And, you know, obviously an important question in any discussion about cancer care, but in terms of clinical trials, what is your view in terms of, you know, patients being treated just on standard protocols or on research studies in CAR-T? Yeah, well, I'm a physician scientist and I run clinical trials, early phase trials, but I also have patients that participate in later phase trials and are treated with standard of care. So my general philosophy is that, you know, the point of clinical trials is to test things and to see if new treatments are safe and then if they are effective and then to compare them. A standard of care is a standard of care for a reason. So if we know that the standard of care is tried and true and proven to have very good outcomes and we're not quite as sure with something that we're testing, I think that's pretty obvious. But when a patient is eligible for a clinical trial and when there is a drug or a treatment or a therapy that is being tested within the constraints of that clinical trial, that is how we move science and clinical therapy forward. And if we didn't do clinical trials, for CAR T cells, and even like the latest for large B cell lymphoma, if we didn't do randomizations, we would not be able to move these therapies earlier in treatment. So I'm a big proponent of clinical trials when it's appropriate, when the patients meet the inclusion criteria, and when I think between the shared governance of the patient and their primary oncologist and the referring facility, it is a good potential idea for the patient clinically. Absolutely. Well, I want to, um, just speaking for myself and I think for the listeners, I want to thank Dr. Rain Rouse, who's an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the Texas Children's Cancer Center in uh, Houston. Rain, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. This is one of the most important things we do is get the information out there. And that really is important. And I thank you so much, not only for sharing it, but for sharing it so well and in such a understandable and exciting way, too. I want to thank all of you uh, today for joining us. And for additional CAR-T cell therapy resources, be sure to check out the LLS webpage, lls.org slash therapy. And for a listing of our continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, including activities on CAR T-cell therapy, please visit lls.org CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And I look forward to you joining us on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. 
Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org ce. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.